As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim Wyatt and in a minute I'm going to be calling up my dad John Wyatt to chat once more about the coronavirus vaccine. The first jabs have already gone into the arms of people here in the UK as Britain this week became the first country in the world to actually deploy a vaccine which had completed all its clinical trials and been signed off by the regulator. But there remains lots of questions about the vaccine. How has it been made so fast? Can we be sure that it's safe? Who should get it first? And even, can Christians be given it without compromising on their religious convictions? Stick around as we try to work through these issues and provide some clarity and answers. So welcome, John. Thanks for joining us again. Um, today we wanted to go back to the issue that we've already discussed before, um, which is that of coronavirus vaccines. Um, of course, the situation has changed dramatically in the last few weeks since we were last talking about this. Particularly here in the UK, uh, we've become the, the first country in the Western world, at least, to start actually rolling out and injecting into people's arms a vaccine which has gone through the full regulatory ap- approval process. Uh, that's the yeah, Pfizer vaccine. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting that that should happen because, um, you know, traditionally the UK is seen as having one of the most uh, stringent uh, regulatory frameworks um, of the UK and Europe and um, in some ways as having a gold standard for the regulation of scientific research and, and so on. And it's it's quite surprising that we've managed to to go through the whole process faster than anyone else. And of course, that has raised some questions and, and even suspicion that, that, that corners are being cut, um, which I, I genuinely believe is not the case. But um, nonetheless, we do seem to be at the moment the first in the world to be um, rolling out uh, the vaccine, which has gone through the entire process of the phase, the different phases of trials that we've discussed in, in previous podcasts. Could you just tell us very briefly then how have we managed to be so fast in approving it, a process which often can take upwards of a decade? How have we completed that in just a few months? What steps do you know that the the MHRA, which is the UK's regulatory authority here, how have they managed to to speed it up? Yes, well, I think what's what's happened is that, of course, absolutely everybody in the system has realised that this is the single most important uh, drug development um, for decades uh, the amount of, of interest, concern, money, uh, the potential implications across the world. And so a lot of a lot of what's happened is a lot of people have basically just dropped everything else in order to ensure 
uh, to focus on ensuring that the the process of analysis uh, and um, the different phases go through as rapidly as possible. Uh, another thing, undoubtedly, is that is that very often in vaccine research, uh, vaccines are a p- sort of poor relation. They're not seen as as very well funded. Um, or high-profile drugs. And so very often, because of lack of money, uh, the whole process of vaccine development has been put on the back burner, whereas other drugs which have much higher profit uh, margins are pushed forward much more rapidly. So I think, again, it's unusual, but vast amounts of of money have have been earmarked specifically for uh, coronavirus vaccines. And so uh, that's another factor. I, I think because everybody was trying to expedite the process, um, what's been happening is that the regulatory authorities and all the independent uh, scientists and clinicians who are, who are part of the regulatory process have actually been uh, analysing the data as as these trials have been going on. So there, there's been a very close link between the the companies who have been undertaking the trials and the, and the regulators who've who've been watching the data as as it's been accumulating. And and again, attempting to expedite the process as, as rapidly as possible. So, you know, in my experience of running a a, um, a randomised clinical trial, uh, it, it took months to get responses back from the regulators, and often we were just waiting around, waiting for a committee to meet and 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 uh, get back with an answer. In this case, everybody's dropped what they're doing to try and expedite the process. So, so I I. All the evidence is, and there are there are hundreds of independent uh, clinicians and scientists who have all been uh, going through the data with a fine tooth comb, comb, analysing it in every which way, checking the statistics and so on. Um, I, I'm absolutely convinced that corners haven't been cut, and it just shows you what can happen if if you get this level of focus and concentration on one single drug. So we can be confident here in the UK, at least that the vaccine that we're being offered, which is the Pfizer one um, at the moment, is as safe as any other medicine that you might get prescribed by your GP for which go through the same regulatory processes? Well, in, in terms of a new medicine, that's true. But of course, you know, one has to make the point that, uh, that there are two things here. One is this is an entirely new uh, treatment modality. Uh, the idea of, of synthesising uh, within the laboratory, on, by completely uh, synthetic means, this this uh, molecule, messenger RNA, uh, m- multiplying it in in billions and billions and billions of copies, uh, and and then injecting it directly into, but uh, they they put it in a in a a, a coating of of lipid. Um, this the, these molecules are put in a special sort of formulation and then injected directly into the bloodstream. Uh, this is this is a completely new technology, uh, and uh, and therefore there there isn't decades of experience of using this kind of uh, treatment as there is with other treatments, and and uh, so one has to say first that 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 is the case. This is a completely new technology. Uh, two, um, the experience you know the pe- people only started the very first phase one trials only started in March something like that February March so. So you know, the longest in which anyone has has had the drug uh, is is nine months, and therefore it's simply not possible to know whether long term side effects might might become apparent years down the line. Uh, having said all that, from a biological point of view, it's quite hard to imagine that unexpected long term complications would happen. The way the way this molecule works, 
The way this technology works is that it's uh, taken up into the cells. The cells um, produce the uh, spike protein. The spike protein is then recognized by the body's immune factors. The body makes antibodies against the spike protein. The messenger RNA itself disappears within a matter of days from, from the body as far as it's known. And therefore you're just left with the, uh, with the antibodies. The idea that months later, uh, the fact that that messenger RNA was around would lead to some late complications. It, from a biological point of view, it's really hard to imagine that that would be the case. Some people have, have unheard the, the phrase messenger RNA. And, and as you said, this is a kind of new kind of vaccine development and have got afraid that somehow injecting this RNA into their arm could change their own personal DNA. Is that medically possible? No, it's it's based on a complete misunderstanding, I'm afraid. There is another completely different kind of virus called a retrovirus, and the best-known example is the HIV virus. Um, and that does have the ability to inject RNA directly into the, the DNA of, of the host, of, of the person. And apparently, if you look inside our own DNA, human DNA, you can see where uh, o o over the uh, thousands of years uh, that humans have been on, on the planet that uh, retroviruses have been inserted into our, our DNA. So, uh, but that's completely different. Here, we're talking about uh, messenger RNA, which is simply not capable of getting into DNA. It doesn't have all the other um, cellular machinery which is required. One of the things we've, I think we've talked about before on previous podcasts is the idea of how you roll out or even ration medical treatment how you draw up priority lists, who to who to receive treatment and who not to. And that's now becoming a, a critical real-life concern because clearly in the UK, for example, it's a nation of 65 million people and we do not have 65 million doses of the vaccine yet. At the moment, we only have a small number and it's going to be gradually increasing over the next few months. So the government has had to literally do this kind of ethical work, which is uh, figuring out how to rank the population and who gets the vaccine first and who has to wait. I don't know if you've seen the list and if you have any thoughts on how the government has ranked the list. Well, of course, it's, it's a very interesting and challenging ethical um, question. You, you know, when you've got a scarce uh, medicine and you want to make sure that it goes into in, the places where it's going to be most effective. And it's interesting that um, the way that it's been done in the UK it, it is almost entirely dominated by age. So, I mean, I don't know if you've got the list there whether you want to just read it out. Yes, yeah, so I'll just run down it quickly. So the UK have started with uh, residents in a care home for older people and their carers. So that's, I mean, not specified by a particular age, but obviously if you're in a care home, you're likely to be pretty elderly. And then the next group are those aged 80 and over as well as frontline health and social care workers then it's 75 and over 70 and over then it's clinically extremely vulnerable people so those are people who um who have any age but you have particular medical conditions which make them very very susceptible to to catching covid and, and becoming ill then it's 65 year olds then it's those with underlying health conditions um but not quite as extreme as before, then it's 60-year-olds, 55-year-olds, and then 50-year-olds. 
and they say that if you take all these groups together they would represent 99% of preventable mortality so that's deaths from COVID-19 that were, could in theory be prevented um, so at least people like me, I'm afraid, 30-year-olds, very much at the bottom of the list. <laughs> You're out in the cold, Tim. Sorry about that. <laughs> but, um, you know, it is interesting, isn't it? Because there would be other ways of doing this. For instance, um, you could argue that, yes, health health workers are, and social care workers are, are clearly of high priority. But what about the other emergency workers? What about police? What about mm. uh, emergency services? Uh, what about essential infrastructure, people who... Um, provides essential transport um uh food and so on you know there is an argument for saying that you should direct the virus uh to the people who who are keeping the lights on so to speak keeping the country uh running in in all their different ways and interestingly um the UK government has decided not to go down that route although it's interesting that if you look across to the USA the CDC um, have come up with uh, recommendations and they put critical infrastructure workers quite uh, quite high up mm. uh, on the list. So I, I think there are some interesting debates to be had here. Uh, I can see that part of the reason why the UK government has gone for age is that there's no debate about your age. You know, it's absolutely <laughs> clear which category you come into. The problem with going with these other kind of more nebulous, you know, emergency workers, uh, emergency infrastructure and so on, is is you could see how those categories become almost endlessly malleable. There isn't, there isn't, and there's, there could be a lot of very difficult debate about, I'm more emergency than you are, you know, sort of thing. Indeed. Um, so by having this very simple, clear-cut, age-related groups, uh, the government hopes to avoid a lot of that. Mm. And, and it's interesting when you read the government page uh, explaining this priority list they kind of say that the way they did it was by looking at um, in different populations how how could you reduce death and so their overriding kind of ethical priority has been reducing death um, whereas it's clear that in America they've taken a few other factors into into consideration so for example by looking at essential and critical industries I suppose they're trying to you could argue also prevent damage to the economy um, and that kind of thing alongside also preventing death. Yes, absolutely. And, and again, you know, there's clearly no right or wrong answer to this. It's also interesting that that what the trials have demonstrated quite clearly is they do reduce death and severe uh, illness. They, there's no evidence as yet that they actually reduce the, the passage of virus. So it's it's theoretically possible that somebody who is uh, being vaccinated, although they will not become s- seriously ill from COVID, or it's much less likely that they'll become seriously ill, they could still be asymptomatically passing the virus on to others. Um, and, and we simply don't know whether that's likely or not. Um, there is some interesting, it may well turn out that some of these vaccines are are better at preventing asymptomatic spread than others. And if that turns out to be the case, I mean, obviously, there will be ongoing research as these vaccines are rolled out. Uh, groups of people who've had the vaccine will be studied quite intensively in order to look out to see whether they are passing the virus on and so on. And interestingly, I think if it turns out that some viruses are more effective at stopping spread than others, then how these viruses are used you could argue therefore that that some sorry how the vaccines are used um so some vaccines could be used um 
pr principally in elderly people to stop mortality, whereas other vaccines could be used in younger populations to prevent uh, passage and transmission within the community. Mm. And of course, the way the vaccine trials work is that they they give half the group the placebo and half the vaccine, and then they wait until they have a certain number of cases of coronavirus. Um, and then they try and figure out if the people who got COVID were disproportionately likely to get a placebo. But that obviously cannot tell how many people got the vaccine, caught COVID, were totally asymptomatic and had no idea, and then may have passed it on to other people. Um, and, that, and so, as you say, we... We, we can be confident from the data we have that the, these early vaccines absolutely are very effective, more effective than even some people thought they might be at, at preventing serious injury. But we, we're not yet sure um, whether, whether people are getting it asymptomatically and still happily spreading it on. Yeah, that's right. And interestingly, this is one of the arguments for using volunteer trials, because if you did volunteer trials where you actually infected people, uh, with the virus, you could then monitor them very closely and see you get a much better handle on whether they were passing the vaccine on, passing the virus on hmm. uh, or not. I did read that one of the other more promising um, vaccine candidates, which is close to being approved, the Oxford University AstraZeneca one, did actually ask people who were participating in the trial to, to get a weekly test for COVID, regardless of whether they had symptoms or not. So I think, and, and that had did show some, has the preliminary data hasn't been thoroughly scrutinised yet, but I think I did read a news article saying that there were some promising signs that potentially that, that vaccine might also be, be having an impact on transmission as well as mortality. Yeah, well, and obviously this is very, very relevant to the, to the ethics of this, particularly thinking from a Christian point of view, because on the one hand, there's, 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 a, a Christian duty to try to protect one's own health and, and not to become a casualty yourself. But, but arguably that's, that's lower down in priority compared with the risk, uh, the question of protecting other people um, and particularly protecting those who are vulnerable. So if it turns out that the virus, that the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission, then the argument for being vaccinated, it, there's still an argument that it protects my own health, but it, it, in terms of my duty to other people, it's much less convincing. Mm. Conversely, if it becomes, if it's clear that it does prevent transmission to other people, then I think the Christian argument for having the vaccination becomes much stronger. concerned about particularly in relation to the uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is the question of whether it is used um, fetal tissue from an aborted fetus in its production um, we've had some questions coming in on the website and uh, people people a lot of Christians in particular are very concerned to try and understand uh, are they somehow ethically compromised by by taking this vaccine you've been doing some some research to try and explain how this all works haven't you Yes, I mean, it's quite complicated, complex uh, issue, but fundamentally it's been known for decades there are these uh, so-called immortal cell lines, which are um, cells that grow in, in the uh, laboratory and which continue to continu continuously grow. And they've, they've been very useful in, uh, in, in all kinds of biochemical and biotechnological developments. 
and they're often used as as testing in order to test um, different um, um, molecular probes and so on because they are uh, very reproducible and they've been very well characterized and so on. And there's one particular immortal cell line which is called HEK293 and, and this uh, all those cells come from a single uh, unborn baby of fetus who was aborted uh, back many decades ago in the 1970s I think and um, the those those cells are frequently used uh, in in biotechnology labs and they have been used um, in the um, in in many of the vaccines that that are currently being developed uh, but there there are some differences so they have been uh, an integral part to the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, so they're used in in those cells are used in the production of the vaccine. It, the the cells themselves are not present in the vaccine, so it's not true to say that there is this tissue within the vaccine as when it is injected into people's arms. But it has been used in as a as a culture uh, in the production of of the vaccine. Um, again, just to clarify, some people have asked, does this this mean that? Um, there, there are um, multiple abortions have been carried out, and the answer is no. It's, it's all this tissue is based on on one tragic case of a, of a child who was aborted uh, for for reasons completely independent of of the um, of the vaccine or of, or, or of science. Um, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Uh, the way that the uh, messenger RNA is created is entirely synthetic. It's just done using computers and synthesized within laboratories. But apparently in the testing process, they have both of those have also used uh, these immortal cell lines from an aborted fetus, the HEK293 cells. Um, there's a very interesting table, which I think we'll put a uh, a link on the on the website if for people who are uh, want interested in this and want to go into it in greater detail. Um, so we'll link to that on on the website for those who want to to, to see more. So just quickly, there's as you say, we're going to have more detailed documents and reading on this online. I'll link to it in, on John's website and also in the notes of this podcast. But all three vaccines: the Pfizer, the Moderna. The Pfizer is the one that's been rolled out right now. Uh, Moderna is another mRNA vaccine, which is close to being approved. And then the Oxford AstraZeneca one, which uses different technology. All three have used these HEK293 cell lines, not to produce the vaccine, but as part of the, the testing process. But the Oxford one used them more than, than Pfizer and Moderna. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And... Of course, this does raise uh, very difficult ethical issues, and uh, I've written a uh, an article which is on my um, the website, um, Coronavirus Vaccines and Christian Ethics, which discusses uh, in more details some of the traditional Christian thinking about the problem of what's called collaboration with evil, and and. Uh, a very important factor is how close that collaboration with evil is. And, and for instance, you know, if I was working in a biotech lab and I was asked to be uh, developing something new that, that involved these cells, then clearly I've got a much deeper involvement from a moral point of view 
um, and and I might feel as a Christian that I I don't want I want to say I'm 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 prepared to work in the lab, but I'm not prepared to work with those those particular cell lines, and and if necessary, I might be prepared to resign if I felt so strongly that it was a matter of principle. Um, that's so. The cooperation that's going on there is, of course, at a much higher level than if if I'm um, uh, somebody who has no connection at all with the biotech industry. I'm just a a uh, citizen who is being offered a vaccine which may protect some very vulnerable people who who I know and i i think we have to uh, this is one of the factors to take in into account as we think about our own to what degree am i complicit, complicit by this action hmm it's interesting i guess it's a, as you say that's a conscience issue for people on 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 to make a decision for themselves um but I guess there is an open ethical question about whether an immortal cell line that was originally derived from some tissue from an aborted fetus is in itself still humans. I mean, humans don't live forever by themselves. It can, I don't know what you think about yes. what the kind of the status of the kind of moral status of that cell line itself. Well, I, this this is what often happens with 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 modern science and technology is it raises ethical questions, which of course. An, can't really be conceived within a traditional framework. I mean, the idea that cells that were created from a person uh, who is now long dead uh, are still growing in laboratories is is, is sort of mind-boggling, and, and uh, let alone the question of what is the ethical significance of those cells. And I think a lot of people would say, yes, it... it the fact that these cells were created in in ethically dubious circumstances uh, is relevant. I mean, you know, you just do a thought experiment. Suppose that there was a treatment that was created by you know babies being tortured, um, and uh, you know those babies have now died. Does that mean that it's irrelevant to how we think about their treatment? I think we would say no. You know, if it's been created in a way which is ethically unacceptable, then that that is that is still ethically relevant, even if whatever I do can't bring the babies back. Um, but there's obviously again this question of the degree of complicity. How close is my involvement? Uh, am I actively involved, or is it something that I'm just allowing to happen? Am I am I directly involved or very indirectly? Is it geographically close to me or is it distant to me? These are the kind of questions which ethicists have asked. And I think in this particular case, uh, for most of us who, who have no connection with the biotechnology industry, I think we would say this this the connection is really quite distant. we wanted to touch on was um, and we've mentioned three uh, vaccines already the Moderna the Pfizer AstraZeneca ones the UK is has secured millions of doses from all three but in fact four others um, the, and at the latest count the UK is now the government has signed deals to have a total of 357 million doses of vaccines from seven different vaccine developers um, we've talked before about this idea of uh, 
the risk that the rich world effectively monopolizes the vaccine by hoarding it and stockpiling it while the developing world is cut out of the deal. And I, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's been an interesting um, report come out recently by a group of um, aid agencies uh, who have made this very point that uh, rich countries have now, it's they say, brought enough COVID vaccine doses to immunize their populations three times over. Uh, whereas in 67 poorer nations that they surveyed, just one in 10 people have any chance of receiving a vaccine by the end of 2021. Yeah, and I I think this is a really very major and very troubling ethical issue because um, there there seems to be something profoundly unjust here that because the rich nations have the financial firepower and they are, by and large, this is where these vaccines are being created, they are assuming that they have the right to buy up uh, all the supplies to ensure that they have uh, sufficient for all their populations, um, whatever the the consequences are for for the majority of people who live in less wealthy nations across the world. And um, this seems to me to run so counter to um, a, a Christian understanding of our concern for the weak, the vulnerable, uh, the defenseless, and, and those who have no voice, um, that I, I really uh, hope that not just Christians, but other people who, who recognize this, this duty we have to the defenseless across the world would, would raise their voices to say that this is just unacceptable. Um, you know, I, I think back to the uh, campaigns at the turn of the century, the Jubilee campaign, which was um, mounted to try to ensure there was debt forgiveness for many um, poor countries who were just loaded with uh, debt and with paying interest but to the rich countries. And that was a very successful movement, which Christians were very much at the, uh, influential in. And, and raising the conscience of of the nation as a whole, to say this was completely unacceptable, and um, I I just wonder whether there is the opportunity for a similar kind of campaign uh, um, uh, to say that um, we want to to be generous with with what we we we've been given, particularly from a Christian point of view. This is what God has given us. We didn't earn the fact to be that we're the richest nation and, and able to therefore to buy. And, and throw our money around and and we have a duty to to people who who don't have the resources that we have and jubilee is very well named that campaign because of course it, it's directly taken from the old testament concept of the jubilee year which was that one year in seven and then after seven of those after 49 years one year in 50 there was a kind of reset where where the resources would be shared out again and to prevent this kind of hoarding stockpiling bigger building bigger barns uh, in, in this is an in ancient israel this is kind of how god sets out the rules you know and, and you see that all the way through about you know don't don't go glean all the way to the edge of your field leave some for the poor the widow and the orphan and the stranger to come and harvest and maybe a modern day version of that is don't buy up all the vac covid vaccine stocks that you can afford leave some behind for your african nations asian nations latin american nations yes in fact it would be very nice to think of a, a same equivalent of the jubilee campaign wouldn't it? i don't know what you would call it the harvest cleaning campaign it doesn't have quite the same <laughs> not quite the same not quite the same doesn't quite trip off the tongue in the same way 
effort. Yeah. But uh, it's yeah, a real absolutely. challenge, isn't it? I mean, people aren't generous very often, in, you know, themselves, but particularly, you know, human psychology tells us when people feel under threat, when people feel scared, like they do right now in the pandemic, it is it is unfortunately our sinful human nature tells us to look inwards and to focus on ourselves even more so than usual. But isn't this the the extraordinary power of the gospel because it is so completely paradoxical? And again, I think back, you know, on a very early podcast, we talked about the Christian carers in the times of the early plague who risked their lives and their uh, safety uh, in order to, to show Christian compassion to the most vulnerable and to the people who were affected by the infection. And uh, it was the very paradoxical and unexpected self-sacrificial actions which which caused such a... Uh, an extraordinary uh, level of interest in the ancient world and, and was thought to um, lead directly to uh, rapid church growth. And, and so I just wonder whether that completely paradoxical action of generosity, um, in some ways, you know, that's, that's the proof of the genuineness. If, if, we, if, there, if that instinct isn't there, I think you have to ask the question, how genuine are, are the Christian convictions of, of those who are saying, in the end, I've got to protect myself? And of course, we must underline this comes in the context here in the UK of the government announcing just last week or two weeks ago that they were going to make significant cuts to the overseas aid budget um, and reducing the spending from 0.7% of GDP to 0.5% of GDP. Um, so this is a, our government is already... Uh, scaling back its generosity and general aid spending. Yes, and and maybe therefore uh, looking for the government to do this is 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 perhaps uh, you, you know well maybe it's not going to happen. And therefore, of course, the government is not the only source of money, and um, there are many Christian people who would have the wherewithal to at least make a contribution towards. Uh, and, uh, this kind of appeal. So uh, let, let's see how things develop and, and, and let's hope that these, uh, this idea of a, an opportunity for unexpected generosity uh, would, would turn into action. Well, that's very interesting. Um, that's certainly something to watch to see what happens there. Let's hope and pray there is a, a surge in generosity, a new Jubilee campaign. Um, I think we're going to draw this episode to a close there. Thanks so much, John, uh, for your time and your expertise. Um, We're hoping to record another episode soon, tackling another aspect of this uh, vaccine issue and and the coronavirus in general, which is all about uh, the surge that we've seen in in misinformation and conspiracy theories and why discuss why why is it that so many people seem not to trust what they're hearing from scientists, from governments, from doctors, when it comes to the virus and the vaccines. And just before we leave, it's worth reiterating, there's lots more material on some of the things that we've been talking about, about the ethics, uh, about vaccines um, on John's website. So we've got some more articles and we're gonna have, I'll include links to those in the, in the notes for this um, podcast, but please do go to www.johnwyatt.com uh, if you want to dig a bit deeper into some of these ideas. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which is a treasure trove of resources to read, listen to, and watch on lots of the things that we talk about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter. And for some of my journalism, head to tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask, a topic for us to explore, or a news development you think we should respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. At a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.